Hey everybody, welcome back to the third episode of the Bits and Barbells podcast. I am one of your hosts, Backsate. I'm Ben. And today's episode, we are going to be talking about our experiences working in both Fang, or Meta in this case, and at a startup. Um, I'm not going to be talking about my specific startup for a number of reasons, but nevertheless, I think that there will be contents and stuff that we can talk about here about talking about working in big tech versus uh, the startup life. And um, hopefully you can get something out of that, see whether you want to go towards the route of those really, you know, kind of prestigious companies like the Mangs of the world, or if the startup is more your speed. Um, so I think the best way to get started is really talking about joining these companies in the first place. So do you want to take us through your application process, uh, of joining meta? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and this will kind of set the context for what the differences in application processes like between like a big tech and a startup. So I will say for meta, this was what the process was like in November, 2021, when I applied and when I joined the, or when I received my offer. Uh, it may have changed since then, but for more or less, it's going to be about the same. And so really what it comes down to for a big tech company is when you're applying just in a void, you're kind of just throwing your resume at this, this posting along with thousands of other people, right? Uh, so I actually did not even apply with myself. I did not upload my resume in a portal anywhere. I actually had somebody refer me to the position, which means that I gave this person, I knew this person, I gave them my resume, and then they uploaded the resume to that internal job posting. And then I was contacted by a recruiter actually about a week after, and they were like, yo, we got your application, we're gonna be in contact with you. So, you know, stay tuned for that. And so I was kind of, this was around late July, early August, and this was senior year. So I was like, okay, you know, fine. Yeah. So I just sat back and, you know, was applying to other places. And then they got back to me like two months later and they're like, yo, your interview's in two weeks. And I was like, okay, cool. So that was kind of my application process at the big tech company. Um, I would definitely recommend, I've said this before, but referrals are king here. Which I'll give you a shameless plug here. Uh, ben has some great content on his uh, social medias, Instagram, TikTok, talking about the referral process and going through that. So if you want more in depth on actually getting that referral, uh, go follow him there. Um, yeah, so that's uh, very interesting to hear. I, I, I don't. I want to sort of finish that thought off though, and hear uh, once you actually got that um, request for an interview, what was the rest of the process like before you get your offer? Yeah, so it was a very defined, rigid process because this is like a well-oiled machine, right? This is a big company. They do thousands of interviews. And so it's a very refined process, very efficient. So beyond that point, they said, okay, your first interview is going to be in two weeks and it's a phone screen. And yeah, basically just give me the times and dates that you're available within this two-week window and then we can set it up from there. And so from there, I had the, the phone screen and then after that, I literally heard back the next day and they're like, all right, you made it past. And then they're like, okay, the final round interview is in two weeks. Or they actually wanted like 10 days, but I was like, nah, two, give me two weeks, please. <laughs> and they gave me two weeks. Um, so yeah, just a very efficient process. And the recruiter was extremely responsive throughout. 
Interesting. Yeah. So mine was definitely a little bit different um, at the startup. Uh, I was actually reached out to on LinkedIn by my now current manager, which um, is not something I hear about at Fang very often. I don't think that the engineering managers are the one reaching out to, especially at the time I was applying to be an intern, right? This is virtually unheard of. And so in the, in the uh, big tech space, but in startups, right? Everybody has multiple sort of um, hats that they wear, right? They have multiple responsibilities. And in this case, my engineering manager was recruiting interns for his team. So he DM'd me on LinkedIn. How he found me, not really sure. And um, I you know, get a couple LinkedIn messages from different recruiters. But because this one was from an engineering manager, I took it a little bit more seriously. I looked up the company. I had never heard of them before. And um, they were big and still are big for what would be a startup, but it was still a startup. And um, he said, okay, if you're interested, then uh, here's this other guy to email. So I emailed that other person with my resume, so on and so forth. And um, he was sort of the actual head of recruiting for this intern program. Uh, We went through, set up a phone screen, which was not at all coding related. It was talking about um, sort of, are you even interested in doing this like it was again very that informal like we're talking about uh what i know what i don't know um and i don't know if anyone doesn't make it past that step but it was very it was like 15 minutes long it was very weird at which point we did actually send up an interview and uh the interview was you know lead code style problems um on uh, hacker rank actually and it's funny now because i can go into the internal tooling that we have like the documentation and i can see the problems that they gave me because we just have a list where people can like engineers can add their own questions to this question bank and um i'm like oh yeah i got that question and that question um but it was uh, one interview of that. Once I passed that, another interview of more or less the same thing. And at that point, I was just given an offer. But it's definitely a lot less of an oiled machine. Um, there were no like this date and that date. It was more like email back and forth, trying to get this thing to work. And then um, getting the offer even was like uh, kind of a process. But um, yeah, so that's, that's interesting to hear the the differences between those Um but definitely yeah. some similarities. Yeah. So I think the, the major differences here are that with a big company, you're going to be interfacing with somebody who does this. That is their main job is to source and recruit candidates. Whereas at a startup, more often than not, people are, like you said, wearing multiple hats. They're trying to be scrappy for their own team or organization. Yeah. Yeah, so then uh, obviously the natural step after you know getting the job is onboarding and team selection process. Um, so I guess I can start for this one. Um, but when you onboard into a startup, obviously every startup is different. Um, but the things that will be more or less the same is that there is no process. Like it, they have a process that probably changes over time, um, but it is uh, ill-defined. Um, again, scrappy, I think is a really good word. We have a documentation, like I said, um, but it's like a checklist that is different from the person that previously onboarded a week ago. And um, they usually will give you a ticket to start working on almost immediately. The tech stack that we use is different than the one we used six months ago. So the documentation may as well, like may also be out of date. Like, Like it's a game of trying to play, is this still relevant? And then you talk to somebody and you're going through the list and they're like, oh no, actually we deprecated that tool three months ago. And you're like, okay. Um, And then they're like, oh, go while you... 
while you're at it, go ahead and add that to the new onboarding checklist for the next person. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, yeah, I think that it, it's fun, but it's definitely a little bit stressful. And if you're expecting something to be very laid out and to have this natural, pro- there's no timeline either, right? It's not like, oh, you'll be in this uh, sort of process for the next four weeks and you're gonna learn this during that. No, it's like, as soon as you have your, development set up like go ahead and start working and then an engineer decides the ticket you're going to work on that's at least how it worked for me and team selection was not even a thing um it was just oh you're part of this team and you're like okay um there there's no real process there in terms of like seeing where you fit in where you're hired is where they already sort of pre-selected you because that's where they need hands right now yeah i mean that's all of this is is fantastic and it's kind of quite the opposite of what I experienced. <laughs> so uh, back in the day when I joined, which was July 2022, uh, when I joined Facebook, now Meta, they had this process called Bootcamp, which is a kind of eight to 12 week program where engineers will go to Bootcamp. They'll basically be given free reign to explore multiple teams within the company and essentially just choose where they want to go. Um, but it also includes a ton of educational material for like the first six weeks, weeks ish. And it's a very rigid process. Like they have literal like flows, tutorials and specific classes that you're supposed to take within this kind of e-teaching framework for that six week period. And then after that, you're given kind of the freedom to sit between multiple teams and then kind of make your decision on, okay, I want to join this one or I, I want to join that one. And after that, it's a little bit kind of wild west in terms of, you know, if some engineer wants that team and they say, hey, I want this team and you weren't first in line, then they get the position, right? They get to join that team. Uh, and so it was a little tricky for me, but I, I eventually got on a perfect team for me. So it did end up working out, but it was a lot more rigid, uh, I would say. Definitely like extremely rigid in terms of the processes that they had to find. I think that's a pattern we'll probably see as we continue going through here, but I, that's something interesting because I've heard about this bootcamp process, but um, is you're basically suggesting that there's actually even a level of competition to get the job you want once you're already in the job you want. Is that what I'm hearing correctly? Well, I will say this, that this is actually a, a recent thing that Facebook or Meta got rid of the bootcamp actually. Oh, okay. Now they're doing pre kind of pre-selected team matching. Um, and, I'm sure they'll probably go back to the boot camp once the hiring kind of is in a more fluid state. But yeah, I mean, it, it, I wouldn't say it was competitive per se. It was just kind of first come, first serve. Interesting. Right. So there was this internal kind of inherent competition to do like a breadth first search as fast as possible, right? And try to really just sit between as many teams as you could to hopefully not lose out on an opportunity that you wanted. Right. And it's so it's kind of a it's kind of a daunting. It was kind of a daunting process. Not going to lie. Uh, it was definitely a little bit stressful, but made it through. So, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I think that um, having those well-defined processes, it, it definitely depends on the type of person you are. Personally, um, I, I enjoyed what I was doing at the startup because it was uh, essentially without having the set requirements of what you need to do. There's no benchmark to sort of place yourself at and be like, oh, you know, I'm not meeting all the classes I need to or whatever. And so you, you never really know where you are. You don't know if you're exceeding expectations, meeting expectations, not meeting. Um, but it's sort of, again, 
scrappy, do as much as you can as quickly as possible. And I think, like I said, I think we'll see that uh, coming over and over as we compare the two. Yeah. Another thing that I, I completely forgot about is I had a boot camp buddy. So somebody who was assigned to me to make sure that I was making through all like the, def- the, the defined checkpoints on time and not kind of messing up and just lollygagging in like the desert somewhere. So they kind of held me in check and made sure that I was doing the right things at the right time, which was super valuable. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, the next sort of thing we're going to talk about here is uh, really important actually when it comes to software engineering, um, because in software engineering, where you write your code is usually referred to as something like an IDE. Um, But then there's also your source code control, which is how you control what versions are deployed where. Mm -hmm. And there's a number of other tooling that is uh, responsible for actually the ecosystem that is the company. And that looks very different between a a startup and um, somewhere like Meta. So I'm curious how that works and what you're actually comfortable talking about as well. Yeah, yeah. This is kind of like the DevOps realm, right? Like the kind of operations of how developers work and that kind of stuff. I, I will say that, so at Meta, you have specific teams within the company that are dedicated engineers that work on these specific tools. They're working to create these customized tools for other engineers within the company, right? So you, if you want a feature, you can literally, if you wanted to, just DM somebody who's working on this particular area and be like, hey, I think this is a good idea. Here's my reasoning X, Y, and Z. And then maybe in you know a couple months, you might see that feature pop up in this tool. Yeah. So I want to clarify just for the people watching, you're saying there are people at Meta who they're software engineers whose sole job is to build stuff for the software engineers at Meta. Correct. Yes. Yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, and then uh, from my understanding, it's all, I use the term internal tooling, but basically it's all Meta made, run, yep. owned, right? Yeah. I mean, it's none of it's external <laughs> facing, right? With, with exception of Workplace, which is like kind of ecosystem that we use to message people and make posts to like organizations within the team, that kind of stuff. It's kind of like Slack, but it's called Workplace. Um, and I think they actually license it to companies as well. Yeah, we use Workplace. Oh, you use, okay, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, perfect. Yeah, yeah. They, do, they do license this out, but there, there is an internal facing one. And for most tools, they're just strictly internal facing so nobody else has access to them very interesting yeah at uh at a startup this is not going to be a surprise but we do not have the bandwidth to build those all those tools for ourselves and so we use the -the off-the-shelf stuff right the stuff that you buy from other people which we oftentimes buy from other startups Um, but when you think about source control we use github uh, ides we use the big ones which are uh, vs code or the um intellij pycharm etc um and basically we we just don't have the bandwidth to have those internal tools so we use the off the shelf off the shelf stuff and get enterprise license um and then we also switch tools very often and this can actually be a really big thing is oftentimes um you know either one tool will become too expensive or we reach a certain level of employee base that we need to migrate to a different tooling at which case that migration can actually be a very expensive process and very arduous on the developer who has to completely switch up their development you know processes because we went from building using one tool to another tool. And that happens, you know, fairly often, I would say in a startup. But again, that's just part of the uh, not having a well-oiled machine. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I will say, you know, I work for Instagram and the way that we kind of use servers, I don't actually have to emulate anything 
for Instagram. So when I'm in my, like when I'm creating a new feature, for example, it's reflected immediately in my on-demand server, which is then connected to my company phone. So I can load it within the app instantly that change. So I don't even have to use like, that's incredible. You know, it's, it's, it's so efficient and it's so clean. I mean, sometimes it does break. So sometimes things just don't work. And when they don't work, you're just like, okay, I just can't do any work today. That's fine. Um, <laughs> but yeah, sometimes things just don't work. Like if there's a sub, for example. Um, but most of the time it works super smoothly and everything is, is super, super quick. Yeah, obviously we don't have a ton of... Uh viewers who may not be in the space yet, or we do have a ton of viewers who may not be in the space yet. Uh, just explain a SEV really quickly because you, you use that term. I just want to make sure if we use a term, yeah. we explain it. I, I don't even know what it stands for. I think it stands for like site event. But basically right. the gist of it is that it's an outage in some type of form within your application or ecosystem. Um, so, and it, it, it kind of layers in terms of importance. So a SEV zero would be the most critical type of SEV everything's on fire that means we had a sub zero you know a couple months ago when instagram was down sub zero instagram is down right uh, that's like everything is on fire the, the buildings are burning down you need to fix it immediately and then it goes all the way down to sub five sub four which is just like all right you know this thing is whatever yeah very interesting yeah no i think that that, that makes a lot of sense um regarding tooling and whatnot um but we also have differences in virtually everything. And that's my segue into talking about something else, which is really just execution planning, right? How priorities are set at the company level and how does that trickle down to what you or me are actually working on, especially at, you know, we're entry-level engineers. Um, and that looks very different. Um, I guess I, I can start on this one, uh, which is that it changes all the time, right? Company-wide priorities, what we're working on has to change because we're competing with everyone else in the space, right? We're, we're fighting for our slice of the pie. We haven't, we're showing our worth, but we haven't shown it yet. And what that means is that it's actually an industry-defined sort of roadmap. Um, if a customer is big enough and they ask us for something, that's now what we're focused on. We don't have the liberties to push back and say, oh, you know, that's not in our priorities. We, we can't work on that yet. Nope. The customers define it. And so uh, that means that it changes so often that um, we'll pause stuff, uh, throw stuff out, start new stuff. Um, even sometimes it feels like daily, although it's, it really is more uh, on a slightly more macro scale, but compared to something like meta, it, it might be week to week. And um, so that's definitely, you've got to always be on your toes uh, because you never know when the project you're working on will get deprioritized for something else and then you have to pivot entirely. I feel like that is kind of a, a discussion between B2B companies and then user-facing companies, which is meta, you know. So I feel like that is, it does touch on kind of like the big tech versus startup, but also it touches on B2B versus users, right? We're responsible to our users, whereas you're responsible to an enterprise customer. Yeah. Right. So our users, obviously, they can report bugs and, you know, they can DM you on wherever platforms you're available, right, to try to get something fixed. But for the most part, it's a top down decision that's being made. Um, and I would say that I think now we can kind of talk about how we plan out individual execution cycles sure. like within the team slash org level. And I'll say for for Meta, it's very much we don't actually do sprints. So we do this kind of execution timeline that takes place within a half. 
So obviously there's H1, two halves in a year, right? First six months of the year is one half, last six months is the second half. And within those two halves, you have quarters, right? So you have Q1, Q2, Q3, Q4. Pretty straightforward, right? Um, and so the execution, it's based off of goals per half. So you, at the start of the half, you have this thing called planning, which you decide basically, okay, we wanna have X amount of features, we wanna have X amount of, maybe there's a zero to one thing, so we wanna have this thing. But it's defined at the start of the half, and once you start execution on that, it usually wraps up within the half. You maybe have some wiggle room to add additional things as it's you know executing, but it's very much a, it's not quite as in flight as I feel like yours might be. Yeah, so you mentioned the term sprints. We we are on sprints, which um, if you aren't familiar with the term, it's usually two weeks, which is essentially every two weeks you commit to a certain amount of work. And this work is usually broken down into something called tickets or stories. Um, they can mean different things. Uh, a larger bit of work is uh, an epic is what we use the term. Um, this is all under the JIRA, which is a, a, the m most popular sort of uh, industry standard for this sort of breakdown of work. Um, but yeah, we do, we do sprints, which means that we are breaking down on a you know, even under two weeks, we're breaking it down into individual tasks that you're committing to for that amount of time and trying to meet those. And um, that allows us, I guess, to partially be as uh, able to pivot as we can because the the work that we're committing to is so granular that if something needs to, you know, stop for whatever reason, we pause it where it was and then we can pick up tickets from this new priority. Yeah, that's a good point. So and it kind of leads to the expectations of work, right? Our expectations are very defined, right? At the start of the half, we commit to N amount of goals and anything we get on top of that is just bonus, right? Whereas what you're defining is much more flexible in nature. Yeah. You need to be able to pivot quickly, whereas with at a big company, it's more like, okay, we know what we're doing, we're gonna do it, and there's not gonna be as much variable at play. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if it's really worth diving into what sort of person is for what, um, you know, style of work, because I think that um, you can get both in each of those in terms of like working on big projects. Um, so I wouldn't base your decision on whether going into a startup or going into big tech on that specifically, because everything is subject to change. But it's just our experiences. Um, yeah. And I will say that this is something that you can get used to no matter what is going on at your company. It's not something you may have an expectation you know, within your schoolwork or curriculum. Like, hey, maybe I'm only familiar with this type of thing. So that pivoting type of structure is not for me. Honestly, you know, you have to give it a shot because it's, it's something that you can get acquainted to and you definitely don't even really know if you're suited for that type of work or even if there's a downside for it, right? Because it is just inherently the same at the end of the day, right? You're inherently just coding, making features, incrementally building things. It's pretty much all the same. It's just a very different in terms of the expectations. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And um, I want to quickly just pivot off of that and talk about work-life balance because I think that's going to be a big question for a lot of people. And again, I think that's one of those to where it's going to be so different based on 
not only the company you're at, but what team you're on at the company, that um, it's not like every startup is going to be hair pulling out your stress every time you go to bed, because I actually think I have a fairly good work-life balance, nor is it if I go to big tech, I'm going to have this cushy job that I'm going to not have to work more than 20 hours a week, right? And so- um, You're you're definitely going to have to work more than 20 hours. (laughs) Yeah, that overemployed stuff is gone. Um, But I I think that uh, a lot of people think when they hear work-life balance and they hear startup versus big tech, that's kind of the image they have in their mind. Um, I don't know if you have any comments on that, but I'm just basically saying, depends on the team, depends on the company. You can't make overarching statements like that. Yeah, I feel like it depends on the team. It depends on the org. It depends on the manager. It depends on the, the teammates even. And this is something that applies uniformly across the industry. It, you can't really make an association with a, a company as this entity and categorize them within a certain box in terms of work-life balance because it's simply not the case, Yeah. right? Certain teams at big tech have higher priorities. They're more critical. Maybe they have more stress within them that causes them to break more, which means that you have to fix things more often. So that would cause an increase in, or decrease rather, in your work-life balance. So these are all factors that come into play, and it's not really one-size-fits-all. You can't really make those broader categorizations. So please don't do that, yeah. Yeah, but um, something that maybe can offset uh, some stressful days are the sheer amount of amenities that you see, especially on TikTok, um, at these really nice offices, which are pretty much exclusive to big tech. Um, so I don't know if you want to, what you really, this is really just kind of talking about uh, how awesome some of the amenities are, but um, from an outside perspective, I'm very jealous. So if you could just enlighten us a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually work at, so I should say something that Meta has multiple offices within the San Francisco Bay Area, like multiple, probably a dozen or so, which is kind of ridiculous, right? Where I mean, you probably only have one office, right? And it's at one spot. So a big company, they have the resources to kind of make sure that their employees are catered to no matter where they are, and it's within reason, you know, not, not excessively. But so I work out of the San Francisco office. But the Menlo Park headquarters is the main sort of suite of offices for Meta. And it's, it's literally like Disney World, okay? So, and they have shuttles that they provide that you can go there that run multiple times per day, multiple routes. You know, it, it feels like millions and millions of dollars are put into the operation behind these facilities. And they're run like a literal amusement park it's crazy just you show up at campus and you're like how is this thing even functioning because it's such a sheer amount of moving parts that you physically and mentally cannot comprehend how much effort and preparation and planning goes into this running this thing it's just like a massive thing and obviously as you mentioned there are amenities within the offices themselves so meals are provided for you can get breakfast lunch dinner Within with a reasonable amount of selection too, you know it's not it doesn't taste that bad if if I'm being honest. Um, so yeah, I mean you have quite literally a lot provided for you, and it does make things a lot easier. Uh, I think at a point in the past, they also provided laundry services. They provided haircuts. There's a gym at. Is there a gym at the Menlo Park location? They have. Well, they used to have multiple. I'm not sure about now. I think they only have one or two. 
but still, you know, yeah. only one or two gyms, right? It's like, okay. Yeah, that's incredible. I think that, um, you know, those, those benefits definitely can't be overstated. Um, I don't think, cause there is, uh, a, a lot of science that goes into just feeling comfortable and feeling like in a, an environment where it's, it's nice to work there. And I think that right. they put a lot of effort into that too. Um, I would say that there was a moment in time and I remember this moment very particularly where I had been working at the company for a couple months and I was just sitting in my desk in the high rise building, you know, in downtown San Francisco, just coding. And I was wondering, I was like, how am I even in this position? Cause it's like, you're given so much comfort to just focus on the coding and the work itself. You yeah. really feel like you're like privileged in that sense. Yeah. Um, so I, when I talk about the startup version of that, I have to really specify that I'm now at a much bigger startup. Um, and so a lot of the processes and the things that I have at my startup are not even afforded to most startups, but even then they pale in comparison to something like meta. Um, but we do have, uh, meals catered once a week to our, you know, somewhat quaint office. Um, it's a WeWork space. And then, uh, we'll, on the days where it's not catered, you can order meals, which free food is not for every company, by the way, don't think as soon as you become a software engineer, you get free food. Um, but then that's you know, what your salary's for. <laughs> exactly. And then we have stuff like snacks and, um, it's a nice office space. It, it, it's a, it's a great place to work. Um, but it is nothing compared to when I hear, uh, you know, about meta Google, et cetera, you know, these other companies, um, again, probably not a good reason to join them, but it definitely helps. It definitely helps, but there's a caveat that it's really only for those big, big headquarters. Because, mm. I mean, that's where the most of the amenities are located, right? I don't have a gym where I work. That's a good point. Um, it's a much smaller facility, whereas the headquarters is literally acres and acres of land, right? With dozens of buildings. Yeah. Something else that I've, uh, and this isn't even from your perspective, but I have other friends who work at Meta or Google and, uh, they've traveled respectively to one of them is currently, he just went to Japan and could yeah. just go to the Tokyo office, which is incredible. And then similarly one who she works for Google and she went to the Sao Paulo, uh, Google office and just could work from there, which is, uh, anywhere in the world, you know, with these massive, massive companies in big cities, there probably is a Google or meta office there. Yeah, no, that's a completely fair point that I, I forgot about. Right. And I mentioned how they cater to their employees, right. And how they have a lot of offices, even within just the San Francisco Bay area, but it also extends internationally. You know, they have offices literally every, like in most major cities on the planet, they have an office. And you can always go there and get free food and just kind of chill if you really want to sleep there. I'm sure you could, right? I'm not advocating for that, but <laughs> I'm sure you could. So it definitely has some international perks as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, beyond just the benefits where we're going to uh, sort of switch conversations here, there obviously are other benefits that maybe aren't um, stated a lot. Materialistic. Yeah, materialistic stuff. Um, and so I was wondering, actually, um, if we could talk a little bit about um, either career growth or uh, like compensation structure. Which one do you want to do you want to start with? I think we should probably start with the career growth discussion. Sure. So um, obviously, you know, people, whether they like to admit it or not, care about titles. And, um, having that's why the term Fang exists, right? That's why it's so sought after, which means 
when you're trying to depart from Fang to maybe another Fang uh, or to non-Fang entirely, that name carries some weight. And having that on your resume as a bullet point um, will probably almost definitely help you when you're looking for your next job. 100%, 100%. And I think one of the biggest struggles as a student, at least from my perspective, was getting one of those big names on my resume. You know, I was always constantly worried, man, I don't have any big names on my resume. I'm, I'm toast, right? And so there is no denying that it makes things easier because of how recognized it is across the industry and the reputation that the engineers who work at these companies kind of carry. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I said I'm at a startup. Uh, what the, the weight will be on to me to explain just how basically effective I was at an engineer at this place and what I was able to do at that place rather than having the name sort of carry that internally sort of by itself. Yeah. I mean, and obviously this is something we have very limited experience with because we've only worked at one company and uh, I don't have any plans of leaving anytime soon. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, there is some intrinsic value to having particular names on your resume, but don't get stressed if you do not have those because it just means you have to, like you said, put more work into the actual resume and the bullet points themselves. Yep. Um, and then the other thing is like, what if you want to move, you know, what if you're tired of your current team, you either don't like your manager or um, stuff like that. I think that in general startups, because they're smaller and because everyone is sort of exactly where they need to be, or they wouldn't be there um, because they're trying to eke out every bit of productivity from each employee. Um, it would be very difficult for me. I could probably do it. Um, but again, that's because I, I do love my company and we are bigger, um, but it would still be a process for me to be like, you know what? I'm no longer feeling the desire to work on what I'm currently working on. I don't feel like I'm growing anymore. Can I go and pivot to some other part of the company? Um, that would be a very difficult process. Um, it's my understanding that probably isn't the case at Meta. Yeah, and I think there's actually two points to talk about here is one, the internal mobility. It's actually very encouraged at big tech, at least for Meta. Hey, if you wanna join another team, go join another team, right? You're gonna have to do some work to connect with that manager and eventually make the, the transition itself. But it is very much encouraged to go and do that, explore your options, right? And there's even a bit of kind of fall through that happens within teams. So teams will have people kind of coming in, going out, etc. It's a very fluid process. Um, and that's why people stay at these big companies for so long is because they have flexibility within them and so if they're really feeling that they need to make a change, well, they can just pack their things and go to a different team. It's very simple to do that. And also another point, hey, maybe I'm deciding I don't even wanna live in San Francisco anymore. Since there are so many offices available, if I wanted to go to Austin, Texas, I could do that. If I wanted to move to New York City, I could do that. Maybe Sao Paulo, Brazil. I can do that if I really wanted to. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's very fluid, very flexible. And it's one of the perks that you honestly 
makes things pretty nice. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, no, I think that that would be really nice. I think that also um, there is something to be said about it just being such a big company that you can almost really think of it as a conglomerate of so many companies that, of course, you can find a role that's somewhere else that you can still contribute to. Um, whereas, like I said, I, can, uh, I can't name every employee by name, but it's pretty close. And so um, everyone's team is sort of their team. And I can't I know what everyone's working on. There's no way I can be like, oh, there's a whole new world out there that I need to explore. Yeah, I mean, a big tech company is is almost like an, a society within itself, right? You have tens of thousands of engineers usually, and they form their own structure. And it's like, there's no way that you can ever explore that fully. Um, but I mean, some people try to. Yeah, um, I think that the sort of last topic that I think maybe many people are sort of waiting for is uh, relating to compensation. And while we're not going to get into individual numbers today, um, which you can probably do a quick Google that doesn't have to come out of our mouths, um, but we're going to talk about like the compensation structure because it is very different, especially when you're talking about early and mid-stage startups versus uh, something like a very publicly traded company like Meta. Um, so I can talk first about how most startup compensation structures work, which is that you have obviously your base salary, which is what you get paid out in cash. Um, many will have bonuses that are either uh, based on your performance or just a set bonus. Um, this is also pretty common in big tech. But then sort of the differentiating factor is uh, this notion of options, right? Options refer to like you, if you are interested in the stock market at all, very similar, except they're granted to you. They're granted them, sorry, they grant them to you at no price of your own. And you have what's called the internal strike price, which is your ability to purchase your own company's stock at that price. Why is this important? Well, if I am allowed to buy 13,000 shares, hypothetically, of my company's stock at 66 cents, right? If you're early on, the cheaper it is because uh, it's based on your total company's evaluation, right? Now, if that company eventually sells to somebody else or goes public and that share is now worth $10 or let's get really crazy, $100, then I have the right to buy those 13,000 shares at that 66 cents and then sell them at 100. And this is how many people will become millionaires overnight from joining startups. I'm not saying that that's guaranteed, nor am I saying it's even that common, but it's not unheard of. And uh, you know, when you think of companies like Uber or Airbnb, these companies really did make overnight millionaires because those employees who had stock options before the company went public then have just an immense amount of value that they can trade on the public market. Um, they vest which is a, another concept that RSUs are probably very similar to, but that means that uh, usually it's a four-year vesting period, meaning when I start, you don't get all of them right out the gate. You have, It's an incentive to stay there, so they'll give you a quarter every year. Sometimes like monthly, they'll add a little bit, but basically you won't get your full amount that was in your offer letter until four years. And what kind of expiry do, do these these options have? Oh, that's a great point. So um, most, it really depends on the company, uh, but most companies will have a date after which you leave the company. You have to either exercise your options, mm -hmm. which means you have to purchase them. So 
having the options themselves is having that contract to say, I can, if I want to buy this stock at this price. Um, but exercising the options means actually I'm going to pay that amount of money to buy that stock. And usually when you leave a company, you have around 90 days to actually buy those individual stocks. Otherwise they poof disappear. And so, um, that's another thing to where there's a really kind of unfortunate scenario where your options can become underwater, meaning that let's say hypothetically, I, your strike price is a hundred dollars, right? Again, and you exercise, meaning I bought a thousand shares at a hundred dollars, but now the stock itself is only worth $50. All of a sudden you paid money for the stock that's now worth less. You got nothing from your options and options also can just become worthless for a number of other reasons. And so it's a, a very big upside and also a possibility of a negative downside when it comes to compensation. And uh, yeah, go well, ahead. I don't think it's a downside. I mean, you're still in fundamentally the same place as you started, right? If you can't exercise your option. If you can't exercise so you don't it. Lose, I want to clarify, you don't lose money, right? If you don't exercise your options. If you don't exercise them. but You don't when, lose any money. No, but if you decide to exercise them, you are paying that yeah. money. If you decide to exercise, that is the only time you yes. can actually Sorry. lose money. Yeah, I, I, yeah, that's a good point. So if hypothetically, if Carter left his company, he could say, I don't want to exercise these options and I don't actually want to purchase these shares for this particular price. And so he just very well within his ability to do that yeah, uh, and just kind of be in himself. And so at big tech companies, you know, these are publicly traded companies, you know, top of the market in terms of included in many indices even. Um, so we're compensated instead of stock options, we have RSUs or restricted stock units which has been essentially just a promise of receiving X amount of shares on a particular date. And usually the price that you receive these at is decided when you join the company. And so then your grant of RSUs is decided by that particular price. Uh, and it's given out on a regular basis. So typically every, every quarter you receive a grant of shares and then you can go sell those the next day, typically. Because uh, there's a trading window that you have access to as a company or as an employee of a company. And outside of those trading windows, you're not allowed to actually sell your stocks. Um, <laughs> so kind of an interesting thing. If you sell your stock and it's not within the company's trading window, you can get in some big trouble. <laughs> That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, and uh, we mentioned the big upside and you know possible downside of options. That just generally is a tighter window um, for RSUs because Facebook um, will probably not 100x from where it is today, whereas a startup very well could. Yeah, I mean, I will say that we have, Facebook has had some fluctuation in it's recent true. years. Um, so that is something to note. I mean, it was the case in years past that things were much more stable and you're much more guaranteed the intrinsic value of the RSU that you have. Uh, in many cases, that would be up. But in today's choppy market, it's not so guaranteed. Yep, you're absolutely right. Um, we've talked a lot today about the sort of different experience at startup versus uh, big tech. Uh, do you have any sort of closing words? Yeah, I just want to say that I feel like there's a lot of flexibility within the startup part of this because, you know, startups range in so many sizes, right? So this can be more or less the same in terms of like the, the high level stuff we talked about, but in terms of specifics, things can actually change up quite a bit from startup to startup, right? Obviously, if you're talking about Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak in a garage, uh, 
1980, whatever, that's a very different startup than Apple in like 1990, for example, which was still maybe considered a startup, but in a very much more mature phase of its life cycle. Um, yeah, that's just something I just want to throw out there really quickly. Yeah, no, definitely. I think um, in general, we should also just add the caveat that we are new grad engineers. We've been working for uh, just about a year, but under a year. And so uh, this is just in our attempts to share this information as much as possible, but we are by no means experts on much of the stuff we talk about. Uh, But nevertheless, we hope that you can gain some value out of it. And so don't take away from this episode, oh, I'm going into this because they said that, or I'm going into that because they said that this would be better. Um, That's that we're just giving information. That's really the ultimate goal out of an episode like this. Share our experience. If you get some value out of it, um, that'd be great. Um, So I guess with that said, uh, we're just going to close off now. If you haven't seen the last episode, we talked about success in college. So definitely go take a look at that. Make sure to follow both of our socials respectively on TikTok, on Instagram, et cetera. And uh, once again, if you have any requests for topics that you'd like to see on the podcast, please leave them below. Don't forget to subscribe. And uh, thanks so much for watching. Appreciate you guys.